It's the story of two young Portuguese missionaries who travel to Japan to discover what has happened to another missionary, Father Ferreira, whom rumor has it has abandoned the faith. And in the film of the novel, there's a mistrouded opening sequence in which Japanese Christians are scalded with boiling water that is poured slowly on them, drip by drip, to prolong the agony until their death. The authorities, having targeted the missionaries, have realized that that's not working and are now targeting the flock instead, believing that the missionaries will more likely abandon the faith when they see the sufferings of the converts than when they experience suffering themselves. Three Japanese peasants refuse to apostatize. They're tied to crosses at the edge of the sea. As the tide comes in, the waves pound them and drown them and then release them, and it takes one man four days to die. Now the group is burnt alive. And perhaps the most gruesome kind of torture and execution is the pit in which immobilized Christian people are hung head first in darkness with a little incision cut just behind the ear to stop the blood rushing to the head so that their death will take longer. And all of that is based on historical fact. It really happened. The horrendous persecution of Japanese Christians in the 17th century and the abandonment of the Christian faith by one of the first missionaries, Father Ferreira. This is a world in which the term God forsaken takes on a new reality. Apparently, God is silent and he's absent. The key character in the book and the film is a Spanish Jesuit priest called Father Rodriguez, and he cannot fathom God's silence as he constantly prays in the face of brutal persecution and coercion on him by a warlord to denounce Christ. Racked with doubt and anguish and faced with an impossible dilemma between keeping the faith and apparently causing the death of more Christians or abandoning the faith to save them, while God remains mysteriously silent, Rodriguez finally succumbs to the inquisitor's demand. He cannot bear, through his refusal to abandon the faith, apparently to be the responsible for the greater suffering and death of Japanese Christians. So he defaces an image of Christ by stepping on it and rubbing his foot in the face. He knows that that will stop some of the suffering 
of the Japanese Christians. But at that moment, he hears a cock crow, just as Peter did after he denied Jesus three times. But in a way that you'll need to read the book or see the film to understand, at that very moment, he hears the compassionate, forgiving voice of Jesus Christ, saying, that's why I came into the world to be trodden on. The Jewish writer Elie Wiesel wrote a very powerful book called Night, an autobiographical story in which he tells the story of his childhood experiences in the Nazi death camps of Auschwitz, Buna, and Buchenwald. In the spring of 1944, Elie Wiesel was not quite 16 when the Gestapo arrived to deport all Jews from his little town in Romania. On arrival at Auschwitz, the men and the women were segregated, and Elie Wiesel never saw his mother and his sister again. In the book, he describes in harrowing detail the suffering of the inmates at the camp. And the most horrendous moment, the most awful experience, is when the guards first tortured and then hanged a very young and angelic-looking boy. Just before the hanging, which he was forced to watch, he heard someone behind him whisper, where is God? Where is he? Took the young boy over half an hour to die, and thousands of prisoners were forced to watch the agonies of his death. And then they were compelled to march past, looking the dead boy full in the face, once again, just behind him, Ellie heard the same voice saying, where is God now? And that question is forced on us through what we know is happening and through our own experience in the 21st century. In 2016, 90,000 Christians were killed for their beliefs worldwide nearly a third at the hands of Islamic extremists like ISIS. Others in the same year were killed by official state and non-state persecution in places like North Korea, India and Pakistan and Nigeria. In 2016, as many as 600 million Christians were prevented from practicing their faith. In Zimbabwe today, after a military coup has imposed upon us Robert Mugabe's right-hand executioner as our new president, we're asking why our prayers don't seem to have been heard over the last 20 years. And change seems further away than ever after all those years of waiting, hoping, and praying. But I know that you know that this is a question, where is God, which is forced upon us by our personal experience almost every day. C.S. Lewis, you know, late on in life had a surprising 
and an amazingly happy marriage. And then his wife succumbed to cancer. And C.S. Lewis says, when you are happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel God's claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double boating on the inside. After that, silence. So at some time in our lives, and I think pretty often in our lives, that will be our experience through what we suffer or as the missionaries in Japan discovered, more painfully through the suffering of those whom we love. Just in the last three weeks, I've got to know Cameron better. He's 13. When he was 10, he was the only one there when his father collapsed and died very distressingly. And for two years, Cameron bore a terrible burden of sadness, which you can see in his face and his body language. And in 2017, he came on camp. And I met there for the first time a boy full of fun and a sense of humor. And I thought, naively, stupidly, he's getting over it. But exactly a week ago, last Friday, his mother came to me and she said, I've been crying for three days. He has no friends, and he has no belief in himself at all. And I discovered that other children call him a retard and say they don't want to be with him in break. And I said, let's talk about your wonderful qualities. And he said, I can't think of any. Three weeks ago, uh, a very angry and rebellious class, just year six, asked me to come and meet with them. They are a class who is identified as the worst, the most destructive. But they said, we want you to help us. And they described a horrendous year they had when their year four teacher, fortunately no longer there, abused them constantly, physically, horribly. And they said, we became angry. And I said, so how bad was that year? And they said, all of them on a scale of one to ten, ten. And they've been angry since and the teachers don't like them. But on that day, almost all of them started crying and said, we don't like what we've become, and we want to change, but we don't know how. And even in two weeks, the change was incredible. But their teacher doesn't see it. The teacher has been told by their parents that the only thing that they respond to is the harshest discipline, so that's what he's applying. 
And so they've changed, but he's not. A year ago, I noticed at the same school, a boy, James, always alone and always sad. And he came on camp, and he changed totally. An amazing boy of a naive innocence. He's 13 now but incredible affection and joy. He never stopped smiling and laughing for 12 days. But his father decided that he needed to go to boarding school to have a man made of him. That's where he is now. Saw him recently. The joy's gone. The loneliness has deepened. And he now feels rejected not only by his peers, but by his father. So today, right now, I can't hear or see God there. And I'm only telling you those stories because I know that they'll resonate with you because you'll say, yes, we know what that's about at all. So where is God? The thing I want to say and to emphasize is that Always, God is where, precisely where, he seems to be most silent and absent. When we can't see or hear him, that's where he loves to be. And later in the book, Elie Wiesel, having told that terrible story of the dying boy, when he heard that question, he heard a voice within him, he says, answering, where is God? He's here. He's hanging here on the gallows. And that is the biblical answer. I love Psalm 77, which describes the people of Israel at their moment of greatest peril, passing through the waters of danger and judgment through the Red Sea. And the psalmist says to God, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters though your footprints could not be seen. Job wrestled with the apparent absence and silence of God. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The Christian writer Andre Lacocque compared Job's whirlwind to Nebuchadnezzar's furnace and commented, Job had shouted, where are you, God? God now returns the question to Job. I am here in the midst of the tempest. But you, Job, are you still with me? And I say that, that God is precisely where he seems to be most silent and most absent. And you may well be asking, but how can you be sure of that? I can be sure because at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you want to see the love and the compassion and the self-sacrifice of God, the hour of deepest darkness and the silence of God is where to see it. 
Jesus suffered the real and eternal silence and absence of his Father so that we can be sure that although he may seem it, God is never really silent or absent with us, even and especially when he most seems to be. Because Jesus there did experience something far beyond what any Christian ever has or ever will be called to experience. You see, the loss of the voice and the conscious presence of God for Jesus was more painful than we can imagine. If one day someone whom I've offended says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that will be devastating. I'll feel pretty bad. But if my godson or my lifelong best friend comes up to me and says, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that will be more than ordinarily devastating. That will be destroying. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. And the forsakenness experienced by Christ on the cross the relational loss was between the father and son who had loved each other perfectly with a perfect trust and mutual submission from all eternity. And in those three hours, Jesus had no consciousness that this is just for three hours because hell feels eternal. Jesus was experiencing the eternal consequences of judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me was not a rhetorical question. And the answer that God gives is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we will never be forsaken by God and never have to think that we have been. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell on Jesus instead. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, Arms folded, eyes closed, a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wretched, Brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his there is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ 
is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does that mean for you and me? It's the answer to those times of dryness or suffering or personal sin when we say, I think God must finally have given up on me. He's not here, and that makes sense. I'm an idiot. I've been a failure. I promised not to sin in that way, and I've gone right back and done it again. So God has every right to abandon me. Or perhaps we're thinking that God has given up on someone we love because of their suffering or their sin or simply because their loneliness and rejection. And when we ever think God's abandoned me, God's abandoned him, God's abandoned her, it's not true. Don't you see? Jesus Christ really experienced not just the loss of the feeling of God, he lost God. He had the ultimate thirst. He was really forsaken by God. Why? So that despite your failures and your inadequacies, God will never give up on you. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you experienced what we dread, the absence of God, the silence of God. And thank you because of your amazing love on the cross. We know that the Father never gives up on us. So please hold tight to us when we can't hold on to you. Carry us when we can't walk with you for your name's sake.